the thing I've learned most is if I make a mistake, which I will, because we all do, years ago I'd, I'd let it eat away at me and that then breeds another mistake and another mistake. Now I'm quite able to go, okay, move on. And it's gone, it's literally gone. Hello and welcome back to Meeting Musos. This is the podcast where I chat to professional musicians all about their lives and their career paths in the music industry. I'm Mark McDonald, I'm a musical director and a pianist, and in this episode I sit down with Steve Holness. Steve is a piano player, keyboard player and MD. Originally from Whitstable in Kent, he studied both jazz and classical piano at Guildhall. Since then, his career has included work as a jazz piano player, working in TV, including shows such as The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent, as well as playing and conducting in the West End. Perhaps most notably when you look at his CV is the fact that he spent three years touring the world as Adele's piano player. We cover all of that and much more in this episode, so please enjoy the conversation. Tell me a little bit about your introduction to the piano and how you then ended up coming to study both classical and jazz at Guildhall? Yeah, well, I, when I was very young, my mum and dad had a little, I don't know why they had it, because they, neither of them play an instrument, but they had a little Bon Tempe, crappy little keyboard in the, in the playroom where all our toys were kept, um, which was always freezing because there was no, it was an extension that my dad had built with his brother. So um, it, it had no heating, it was freezing. But I used to go out there in my dressing gown at night um, and just play, just make things up. So I, I, I spent hours just sitting on it, um, working out what notes work with what, not knowing what on earth I was doing, um, but finding little tunes. I, I, play, I found out the tune Beautiful Dreamer. <laughs> so I remember playing that and my mum was very proud. Um, <laughs> so, so I was always the one that sat at the keyboard just messing about. Um, but I'd always had a tal- talent for music, I suppose. When I was about six, I remember... Um, I always used to do the choir at school and things like that. And the headmistress, actually, um, she came out to my parents when, she was about, when I was about six and said, I'd be very surprised if you didn't have a career in music, which is pretty incredible. For I wasn't playing an instrument at that point, you know, but she, she obviously saw something in me. Yeah. And she was a big music fan because I do remember school assemblies, she'd just bring out her James Galway flute albums, <laughs> just play them to the whole school. We'd just sit there listening to this classical flute play. Um, <laughs> Bear in mind, this wasn't this is not a private school or anything. This is just a run of the mill, you know, infant school. Um, so yeah, so I I kept playing around on this keyboard, and then, then my mum and dad thought I should have some lessons. And my dad got a, a more up to date keyboard, and I started lessons. But it wasn't piano lessons. It was it was keyboard lessons. You know, drum machine, chords, melody. Yeah. That's that's what I learned for years. And these are tunes. You, you know, your nan loves, you know, Bill Bailey, won't you please come home? All yeah. rubbishy tunes like that. So I spent years just doing that. Um, and it ended up being that my teacher would set me a song. I'd play it straight away. So somehow I'm supposed to work on it for a week, even though I've just played it to it. <laughs> and so I just start making stuff up. I just start making my own melodies up and improvising over the chords that, um, that I could hear what I was doing. Um, so after a while that teacher said, look, he needs to move on. I think he probably likes jazz. He's doing something called improvising. He's making things up. Um, So went to another teacher 
who was more of a jazz teacher and he recommended some people to listen to. Um, but this whole world of jazz, I didn't know what it was. So um, I remember my mum took me down uh, a secondhand vinyl shop in Whitstable where I grew up. Um, lovely. Everyone knows Whitstable now. It's really cool. But yeah. then it, no one knew it. I had to tell people <laughs> I, I lived near Canterbury because no one knew what Whitstable was. But now it's this, you know, um, Islington-on-Sea it's known as now. So it's this really trendy place. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I, lo- I love going back there, but it's a very different place to when I grew up. Yeah. Um, when the high street was empty and there was no trendies or anything. Um, but yeah, so we went to this record shop um, and I was looking through his jazz section, not knowing any of these people. And just this, this album cover stuck out at me. Um, there was this piano player, this black guy just sitting at a piano looking super cool. And I said, well, can I, can I have a listen to this one? And uh, it was Hampton Hawes, Spanish Steps, and that was the album. And he put it on in the shop and instantly all the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up as I listened to it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. This is incredible. So I bought that. That was the first, that was the first jazz album I ever owned. And I listened to it to death. So yeah. I love jazz from that point. Um, and that's what I thought in my head. I definitely want to do something with this style of music. Bear in mind, I'm about... I'm about um, how old am I here? I'm probably about 11, right. maybe 9, 10, 11. I can't really remember. To be honest. Um, so, yeah, so I had a different teacher who, who then introduced me to Oscar Peterson, these other amazing jazz musicians. And I started trying to get... <laughs> trying to get a left-hand technique going, because all I've done is these chords for the drum, a drum machine, uh, all root position chords. Absolutely useless for what you do now as a professional musician, but that's what, <laughs> I, was, that's what I was doing. And then um, started secondary school and started classical uh, piano lessons right. with the teacher there, which was uh, interesting. He's, he's a complete character. And uh, had many, many inappropriate conversations. His language was appalling, and I'm only an 11 year old. But he, and he used to sit there, and I mean, I, it was great. I started on my grade four and I worked up to grade eight through the school. But I didn't really have a technique, if I'm honest. Um, he used to actually laugh at me. <laughs> He'd laugh at my technique as I was trying to finger a scale. He'd just be sitting there, shoulders going, laughing, because it was so awful. Rather than trying to help me sort it out, he just laughed at me. <laughs> Um, so that was that was challenging. So I was aware. I, I technically I um, I struggled. I, I to this day I don't know how I passed my grade eight at that point because literally I had no technique. I was just flapping around. Yeah. So th- during while I was at school, then because I've, I've got really into the jazz, then so my mum and dad helped me go to some summer schools at the academy, some jazz summer schools. I went to three of those, um, which was really great because you. I was just experiencing all this new music, meeting all these people, seeing how good people were in London. You know, I didn't live in London. It was incredible. Um, and I then, this is towards the end of my secondary schools now, so I, then I met a really good teacher in these summer schools and I explained to him I wanted to audition for the music colleges. And he said, well, you, you can have lessons with me. I'm in London. So my last year of A-levels, my dad would drive me up to London every two weeks and we'd have lessons with this guy called Charles Brereton. He's an incredible jazz pianist. He doesn't, he doesn't work as a musician. He's, I mean, he looks like an accountant. It's unbelievable, <laughs> but he is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and he, he got, you know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have got through an audition to music college, to be honest. Wow. So, yeah, that's how I got into music college, somehow. Yeah. And so your time at Guildhall, was it, was it mainly jazz at that point, or were you sort of forced into more of the classical stuff and developing your technique? 
You were forced into both. I mean, to be honest, my, I really wanted to go to the academy because I had done the summer school. That was my aim. And I remember I had a place at Guildhall offered to me. Um, and I really wanted the academy. And Michael Garrick, who was ringing, running the course then, he rang me up on Boxing Day. I'd, I'd, it was a really strange time to ring. And he said, look, we, we're not going to take you this year. Apply again next year, old chap. Um, <laughs> and, and I just thought, no, I don't want to wait a year. I'm going to go to Guildhall here. Thank God I did, because I loved it. Um, but yes, so the course, it was the second year of um, the jazz undergrad course. But at that point, they've changed it a bit now, but at that point you had to do classical. You had to do a jazz. You, you followed the classical course with the classical pianists. You weren't expected to do everything, but you were marked on that level. Right. Um, and then you had the jazz on top of that. So, mm. And it was the second year they'd done it. So they were still finding their feet, to be honest. I know it's very different now, and we'll probably come on a bit later on with some of the things that I can look at that were missing. I think they've imp- implemented now. Um, but yeah, so it was, a, it was a, a jazz classical course. And I started that in 1995. Cool. A long time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> 20, what, 25 years ago? 26 years ago. 26 years, yeah. Um, that, so starting out with a keyboard and like, you know, chords and drum machine and all that stuff and then moving into jazz, is that, how important do you think that initial introduction to music in, in that, in those styles how important has that been to the way you think about music and the way that your career's gone because obviously you've done a lot of work in the commercial world and yeah um it's very you've basically done the opposite to what I did where I started out with classical piano lessons and did my scales and my arpeggios and theory and all that um and I would love to have done a bit of what you've done as well because I feel like that was missing from my music education in in, you know as a kid um do you think that that's can you connect everything back to to that time? I think so. Um, in terms of making things up and thinking of music as a as an art form that you can express things in, rather than what's on a page needs to be played. So I think I try to hold on to that. I mean, the other thing that I had, as well as all the jazz, I was a which sounds to me aside from other musicians I know, I was a massive fan. Of, um, and I'm an obsessive fan of Mike Oldfield when I was a kid. I, lis- right. I listened to either jazz or Mike Oldfield. So it was either jazz music or it was instrumental, long epic pieces, tubular bells, incantations, mm-hmm. Omidon, all these incredible albums that I grew up listening to. And I... So that's all expressive as well. So I would, I would think nothing of sitting at a piano and just making up an epic piece about pirates that lasted 40 minutes, which I did for my GCSE, which I did for my GCSE um, composition. I remember I, 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 my poor music teacher, Mr. Cheeseman, he was amazing. He introduced me because I kept listening to Mike Oldfield. He ended up saying, you know, give Philip Glass a listen to, you'll like this, you know, Glassworks. It's the first time I heard Glassworks, which is now one of my favourite albums. But I remember him just recording me Bless him, in the old studio. These are the days when we didn't have Max and Logic or GarageBand or anything. And so our school had this old little studio and I'm playing this 20-minute <laughs> epic piece about pirates that I because I thought I was Mike Oldfield II and I'd made this up. <laughs> and then I'll stop here and then I'm going to use the bit I've done on computer and that's going to go... And, he, and it was, you know, he was great. He was really supportive. So I had that as well, um, which I've tried to hold... I mean, you can't, you can't be a professional musician thinking that, really. If you go to Guildhall essentially what happened was which I'll tell you you know the, that part of me was literally mur- murdered by pressure <laughs> right. 
Um, but yeah, so but it it certainly it certainly shaped the way I think of music that I still try try. I, I realise the importance of still trying to be creative with whatever you do, and that's so difficult in the world we work in to, mm. as a musician to still try and be creative when you're saying, for example, in the West End, if you've got a show, this has to happen at this point this has to be a crescendo here because this is happening, et cetera, et cetera. And unless you've written the music or you're really part of the creatives, it's quite hard to feel like you're still being creative. I, I struggle with that. Yeah, I think especially as a keyboard player as well, when you've got volume yeah. pedals and numbers that you're trying to hit and, and all yeah. that sort of thing as well. And um, yeah. yeah, I totally get that. Uh, so when does pop and rock come into it for you? Was that just a natural well, progression from jazz? Um. Not really. I mean, I used to, as a kid, I, I mean, I was obsessed with Michael Jackson, so I'd always imagine being in his band and I'd play the bad album and just air keyboarding in my bedroom. <laughs> but I didn't, but I really wanted to be a jazz musician. Um, and then at college, obviously that's, that's encouraged. It's not really encouraged. It's not really explained to you what actually being a jazz musician is entails mm. it entails having no money <laughs> that, that's the truth if you're just a jazz musician unless you're in america and unless you're playing with the greats and even then i mean i've never got to that point in my jazz career to be honest but um it's it's tough it's really really tough um i mean speaking of guild hall i do remember the first day i started so the first day i started the guild hall uh the head of academic studies robin bowman one of the most clever men i've ever met in my life and he stood in front of the whole year and he said uh welcome everyone welcome this is our welcome speech welcome everyone uh, welcome to the hotel uh, have a look around uh, just so you know half of you by the end of the course won't be here you won't have finished the course oh my god. god and he was right half yeah. of people didn't finish you know you're, it was intense pressure two exams two exams a, a year and if you fail one you get another go and if you fail it again you're out that, and that's what we had yeah what a welcome um, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It was terrifying. So you're looking at your friends, is it you? Is it me? And, and as it transpired, lots of my friends didn't complete the course. Um, mm. And I, I understand why the pressure was so immense. But yeah, I, I still wanted to be a jazz musician. I had to, my shock at Guildhall was that, because I had this no technique business, so I got into Guildhall and very quickly realised from being the best in the school and the best in the area and the golden boy, suddenly I was way, way, way down the pecking order. And literally, it wasn't good enough. My technique wasn't good enough. And if I, unless I sorted it out, I, I couldn't continue. So I had to go back to... It was so soul-destroying, I had to go back to five-finger exercises when my friends and my colleagues are yeah, playing concertos, etc. So that was, that was a real test of character for me. Um, and it was really difficult. And I had to really put the hours in. Um, but I, yeah, I managed it. And then by my third year, I had to do a whole piano concerto, yeah. which you have to do at that point, um, which was a great thing for me. Um, really big achievement for me. Were you sort of on board with the idea of breaking it down and get going back to basics or, or was it a reluctant thing for you? I, no, I was, I was, cause I knew by this point I had, I had no technique and I knew, um, I had to sort it out if I wanted to get on, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, there's lots of stories from Guildhall of, um, I remember one, we had a, a piano, they had a piano platform every, I think it was every two weeks, where all the piano students, both undergrad and postgrad, would be in one little theatre, 
and certain people would perform. And you've got, I mean, I went to college with such clever people and they're playing this Debussy, these beautiful pieces of music. And then I'd have to get up sometimes to play jazz and then you're the cool guy because, hey, he can play jazz. This is great because we, there weren't many of us. But then I'd also have to play classical. And I remember one, I, 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 the whole notion of memorising classical music was new to me as well. Um, and I remember, I, I forget the piece, I think it was some Bach, and I, um, it was my first performance from memory. And I was so nervous about it. And it's so nerve-wracking anyway, because you've got not only the piano students, who you don't know, the ones in the other years, you've got all the piano staff, who... Yeah. You got the sense that some of them were thinking, what on earth is this, class, this jazz course? You know, these guys are not the level we're used to mm-hmm. in our world, you know. And uh, I remember, stupidly, it was a lesson I learnt, I took the music down with me, down the steps, on the long walk towards the grand piano, <laughs> and I placed it closed on the top of the piano. Don't know, because I, I thought, if I forget it, it's there. I mean, what message am I sending myself? <laughs> and lo and behold, what happens halfway through, I completely forget it. And I have to stop and it's silent and everyone's looking at me. And then I have to shaky hand, pick up the music, find the page, wanting to die and then find where I am and just finish the piece. I learned a lesson that day. You know, if you're not ready, don't do it. And if you are ready, you don't need the music. <laughs> God, just, that, yeah. That's so, like one of those, you know, performance anxiety dreams that you get yeah. <laughs> before doing a performance. Man, it was horrific. Yeah. Absolutely horrific. If I look back now, I think... I think two things. One, I didn't get out of it what I really could have got out of it because I think I was a bit immature at the time. Um, I was more interested in, not more interested, but I was also interested in, I'd, I'd moved to London, I had independence, I wanted to go and get drunk. I, part of me wanted to be an oasis because <laughs> I was massively into the Britpop scene. So I was at a cross, so I, I really didn't, if I'm honest, I don't think I gave it all that I could have given. If I went back now, I'd do a very different degree, to be honest. But also, sadly, I think what Guildhall did for me, the spark that I, before I went there, I, I had that attitude of anything I want to do, anything I want to play, anything I want to compose, oh, I'll just do it. It'll be great. I'd have the confidence to go and sit with my music teacher for 15 minutes going through, this is my piece. And I have to say, Guildhall, because of, for, for two reasons, one, because of the, unbelievable standard of people there I, I, I was shocked of the talent that I was witnessing literally wherever you turn um, and some of my friends are still some of the cleverest people I've ever met um, part, some of that and because also they're incredibly hard because I suppose they have to be it's one of the best places to study but I lost that spark I lost that part of me that just gets up and does it Mm-hmm. And honestly, I've never really got that back. It's I've had confidence issues ever since Guildhall. To be honest, it's um, it's it, it killed a bit of it killed a bit of me my spark, my artistic spark. If I'm honest, yeah. So much of what you've just said is is familiar to me, and I'm sure familiar to lots of other people who who do what we do. Um, you know that idea of going to study at university or a conservatoire or music college at that age and and not getting out of it what you could. I think everyone I know feels the same way because it's mm. just at a stage in your life when you're developing all that independence, suddenly you've got your whole social life's available to you. You can go, you're probably in a new city, you can go out, you can drink, you can meet new people. And it's a really tough time to actually, you know, there's so, such important years as musicians in our career and you're training, but how many people do you think actually get 
everything out of it that they they possibly can. I don't think there's many. No. Yeah. But then also you had some people there um, who have come from a completely different background. Because I, I, I came from a state, a state school, which was in the middle of a council estate in Canterbury. And that, whereas other people were coming from Chets or something like that, where they're very used to that environment. And there were people who would run back from, from a class at lunch hour. They'd run back to Sundial Court, which was the, um, the student halls around the corner to practice during their lunch break. I mean, right. it, was, it was a completely different world to me. Um, I'm a, but ultimately, I had, to get, I had to get my arse into gear a bit because when I was doing my concerto and in my third year of the four years, I realised I really needed to work hard. So, I, I mean, I ended up doing that. I ended up being at college at seven o'clock in the morning, three hours before lessons started, lessons, three hours at night, and then on my piano at night yeah. in my own room, you know. But I had yeah. to do that because for me to learn a concerto was an awful lot of work because I it was uh, you know I wasn't coming from all that world experience at it. Yeah. Uh, but I did it and I got marked at the level at the classical people and I got I, I got a C for my concerto at the same level that the classical guys were marked and I was so chuffed with that. It was amazing. That was a big accomplishment for me. Yeah. The other thing that stands out in what you were saying is that um you know coming from being the best in your school or your your local area and being the big fish in the small pond and then suddenly being put into this environment where it seems everyone's better than you. Um, yeah. And actually, a previous episode of this, when I was talking to Duncan Floyd, who you know, um, yeah. he said that that was a reason that he thinks it's not necessarily the best idea to go to music college for a lot of people because you're suddenly thrown into what is can be a bit of a toxic environment where you're comparing yourself to other people all the time from a really, you know, formative part of your, of your life. And is it better to just, you know, find your own path and get some private tuition and and learn your own way rather than putting yourself in amongst all those other people who you're going to be constantly comparing yourself to? Yeah, it's a catch, it's a catch 22 situation because I've thought that and I'm very jealous as you, as you work, as you spread out into the commercial world, you meet a lot of musicians who, don't even know what music college is. Um, and you see that they, hey man, do you want to just like write some tunes? And that sounds like I'm just being disparaging. I don't mean it at all, but they, they have that confidence of let's just write together. Let's do this. And I've actually been really jealous of that because, yeah. oh man, you, I used to be like that. I used to have that and I don't have that anymore. So I've certainly thought what Duncan's thought, but equally on the other side, I imagine you could, if you looked at my career and if I look at it, you could equate everything from being at music college and who you meet and who you work with, that leads to something else, which then leads to something else, to something yeah. else, to something else, et cetera. And everything I've done has come from the people I've met at music college, I think. Yeah, that's that's really true. Uh, would any of us be doing what we were doing if we hadn't done, you know, everything that we've done up to this point? Probably not. Mm. Um, so you graduate from Guildhall and then you work as a sort of gigging jazz musicians that is that what i did followed? i yeah. did yeah 1999 graduated um i had a good thing that happened to me i went straight into nigel the national youth jazz orchestra um the piano player was leaving and he recommended me so that was a really good thing so i was in there for three years um which is an experience unto itself anyone who's done nigel will know exactly what i mean bill ashton who runs it um i mean it's amazing how he, what he's done but it's an experience. I remember the first, they rehearse every Saturday and we were rehearsing in a theatre behind um, Baker Street around there. And I, it was my first rehearsal, incredibly nervous, incredibly nervous. I'd heard all these horror stories about Bill who he can, he can completely, utterly roast you. 
and I walked into the rehearsal room, which is the theatre. So it's the theatre in the round, the band are in the middle, some public come and watch, but it's all the band who have done it for years. He sees me, he beckons me in while the band are playing a tune. And I sit at the piano and he just says, OK, let's do number so-and-so-and-so. And it was a piano feature, literally a, an absolute roast piano feature, which I had to sight read with the band. And that was effectively my audition, which I didn't realise I was doing. Um, but it was a good lesson for me of how Nigel worked, because what he'd do, he's, he's got a pad, for those who don't know, he's got a pad of music. There must be over a thousand arrangements they have. I mean, you'll rehearse certain things and there'll be certain commissions, like we did a prom, we did uh, some TV things. But generally, you'll rehearse certain things, but on a gig, he'll just call a tune out, a random tune, and you're sight reading it. Um, so it was a, that was my best education for sight reading, was that. Because you're just yeah. thrown in, and it'll be a feature, and you're, oh my God, and you've just got to go with it. And it's, it was a brilliant, brilliant experience for me. Yeah, it's a proper baptism of fire, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it enabled me, I did my first gig abroad with Nigel. I'd never even been abroad in a, on a plane. And I had my first flight, we went to the gig in Cyprus, in an amphitheatre in Cyprus. Um, so I s- suddenly felt like I was a working musician. You know, oh, wow, I've been paid to fly to another country <laughs> to do a gig. This is amazing. Um, so it was brilliant. So I did that. Um, yeah, and then that also with Nigel, enabled you, we had three or four times at Ronnie Scott's, so that I was experiencing working at Ronnie Scott's a week at Ronnie's, which was amazing. Um, and they gigged, you know, it was two or three gigs a week. It was a busy band. Mm-hmm. You didn't get paid much money, but it's not for that. It's, a, it's another learning curve, you know. Um, again, met more people and then, yeah, carried on as a, as a jazz musician. Um, doing what jazz musicians do, the old jazz gig, lots of functions, <laughs> as we all do. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's a, that's a story unto itself. I mean, some of my friends then started function bands, so I was lucky. A mate of mine, Dave, Dave Foster, started a, a really good function band. So every Friday, Saturday, this is after I've left Nigel now, every Friday, Saturday, we'd be driving somewhere up the country to do a wedding, you know, like everyone done thousands of weddings. Yeah. Um, all have some funny stories. Uh, I have two that I do want to say. <laughs> so the, the, first, the first one was one of my first function gigs when I was still at Guildhall. Um, there's a, I don't know if you know, there's a Facebook page called, I think it's Bandwidges, and it's right. a Facebook group of musicians, and they take pictures of what food they're given on a function gig, because <laughs> it can vary. And it's, a, and, and it's, the worst one was my first one, so I, was, I kind of thought, oh my God, it can't get any worse than this, and luckily it didn't. But it was a really posh function, and it was a jazz trio that I had sorted, and we were ushered into another room. They were eating this beautiful food. Okay, you don't expect that. But what we were given was a slice of bread, a slice of tinned Spam, a slice of bread, another tight slice of tinned Spam, a slice of bread. And that was it. <laughs> that was our food. I've never experienced anything like it. Um, so that was, that was really a baptism by far, by fire. Um, so that was good. But yeah, in another wedding, I remember, um, you're married, I'm married. You know what it's like with couples and what, what they want and if certain people can be a bit more demanding what they want and there was this one wedding and this couple were having dance lessons for the first dance so they were very particular with the arrangement of whatever song it was I can't remember and they had had lessons for 12 weeks dance lessons and as they were learning the dance the arrangement would change blah 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 so we got to the wedding and my my mate who had been um doing the arrangement and whose band it was was pretty sick of them by this point because they'd been giving a really hard time changing the arrangement changing the arrangement so we got to the wedding and it was a very big affair, a massive country house and we were in a, a marquee. 
And <laughs> the bride during the day got so drunk that she ended up having a massive argument with her new husband in front of everyone. <laughs> she stormed out. Uh, she vanished for hours. And then by the time the first dance came, she wasn't around. So we just, like, nothing was happening. So we just played it anyway. And everything, everyone was improvising. And then she turned up, she'd taken a dress off, she was in tracksuit bottoms, and she sat in a huff for the rest of the evening. Oh, my God. That is horrendous. <laughs> the money they must have spent, it was just shocking. Terrible. Unbelievable. So, yeah, so jazz musician, uh, Nigel, function gigs. And then random jazz gigs where, I mean, I had a few jazz residences with different singers at Café de Paris, different places. You do what you can, you get what you can, because it's a really tough life. There's not a lot of money in it. Mm. I remember, you know, I, I then got in a group with a singer. We did a tour of, a few tours of village halls, art council, village hall tours, so I've done hundreds of them, you know, driving through the countryside. This is before Satnav, having a massive map on my, not knowing where the hell I'm going down these little country lanes. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Fantastic experience. And then you're bringing live music to people who live in the middle of nowhere who, who wouldn't be getting this otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think that was Arts Council sponsored. So I think, you know, shouts out to whoever started stuff like that because that was really good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I kind of had a... At this point, I'm a jazz musician. I'm eternally got, like all jazz musicians, got a chip on my shoulder that I'm not earning enough money. And there was a big part of me now that really wanted to get involved in something else. Um, I had always fought against, I don't know why, but there's something in me at the time, this is massively different now, but at the time, West End musicians were, at my time, looked down upon when we were at Guildhall. It was, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's just selling out. I'm not going to do that. Um, I know that's different now because now people come out of music college and they are ready to go and it's that's what they want to do yeah that's what they want to do and that's what we're competing against now at our age which is terrifying Um, but at this point I was wanting something I wanted to earn some money and I I was getting a bit down with it and I remember driving like driving to places like Oxford from London all the way doing a massive jazz gig playing my heart out carrying all the gear and getting 30 quid cash which barely covers my fuel and I for me, the love of the music wasn't there enough to justify mm. what I was doing. Um, so I was at a real watershed moment and I really wanted to do a... I wanted to play pop music. I wanted to get into a pop band. I would, and that hadn't ever happened for me. And I thought, oh, my time's gone here. And then I started thinking, OK, what about West End as well? There's, there must be money there. Um, but how, do, how does a jazz musician who knows no one get into that world, you know? Um, and I remember I was on a function gig and one of the guys on it worked on We Were Rocky. He was a dep on We Were Rocky and he was talking about it. And I just said, well, how, how do I do that? And he, he made it out to be so easy. He said, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. I mean, the keyboard players, they just do like, you know, helicopter noises. <laughs> He's joking, but, you know, just a few bells here and there. And I thought, wow, this sounds really easy. Great. Because <laughs> I knew nothing. I literally knew nothing about the West End. But he told me, he gave me a contact, a guy called Jeff Leach, who's an incredible piano player. Um, we were Rocky had just opened at this point. He said, well, give him a call. And, you know, he's always up for letting people, giving people an opportunity. Just go in and sit in, you know. So I did. Um, and it was incredible. It was two things I, I learned that first day I sat in were I noticed two things I hadn't 
that had been missing from my Guildhall education, again, which I think they've changed now. One, we hadn't had any commercial conducting lessons at all. Mm. I did conducting at college. I had to do a conducting module, but it was all classical conducting. And two, I didn't understand click tracks because we had never been introduced them at all. I'd done a bit on function gigs and function gig arrangements, but to hear it on a show and how it works and how it's implemented, it was all new to me. Mm. In fact, it was a third thing as well. Sitting behind this guy, Jeff Leach, who's incredible, Hammond organ playing. I had never, ever been taught how to play a Hammond organ. And he was incredible. All the sliding, all the draw bars. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know. It was just, I was learning as I was watching. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing for me. And, and, and a shame, I think, that that wasn't taught on a, on a course, you know, a four-year course at a music college. But again, I think, I know like Malcolm, who, who runs the course now, I think they've got a commercial music uh, module or actually a concurrent thing that you can do along with it I think and I think most music colleges have introduced this now great and as we know there's 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 um, musical theatre courses now at music colleges as well isn't there so it's all completely different yeah but um yeah so I sat in we were you and he he basically asked me if I wanted to dep which was great so I started depping um it's weird because my, my west end career starts and then it stops it stutters then I do some pop stuff and then it goes, goes back into it again. Right, so I'm yeah. kind of talking you through yearly how it happened. Um, yeah, so I started working on We Were Rock You and I, uh, if I'm all honest, I wasn't ready. Um, I didn't really understand the magnitude of what I was doing. And when I think back now, I made some silly errors. I was so outrageously nervous every show, like shaking to the point of it affects your playing can't keep my foot still on the volume pedal that is the things. worst isn't it <laughs> yeah horrible panic I, I, I mean a, a few times i wanted to i've never experienced this before and i, presu- I presume it's it's a genuine panic attack i wanted to just get up and run out the building is horrific yeah. heart thumping covered in sweat i've never been so nervous anyone that tells you you know i can i can tell any musician out there of all the things i've done and i've done i've been very lucky i've done some big things the most nerve-wracking thing is a first-time Depp on a West End show. 100%. <laughs> so, so when it transpired years later that I'm conducting and I have a first-time Depp, I've always, in my mind, one, been aware of how they're feeling, and two, not done what I've seen other MDs do and completely roast them, as, yeah. as, as if, or give them a glare, as if they think that's going to make it get any better. Exactly. Not, you're just yeah. going to make them feel so much worse. I've always tried to put them at ease, and don't worry, come on, come on, it's, it's good. Um... Yeah, so, but anyway, so I wasn't really ready. And actually, what I think happened, and here comes the big secret I shouldn't tell anyone, I think I got the never again. I think I did. Because, which is the dreaded call, dreaded MD telling, telling the person whose dep it is, yeah, don't have them in again, please. <laughs> because I, I worked on it for about nine, ten months. And then I didn't get a call again for a year. Mm. And, I mean, there were a lot of deps, but I think I must have got the never again. And I think probably rightly, because I don't think I was ready at that point. So back to function gigs, back to doing, uh, well, not that I wasn't doing the function gigs at the time as well, but back to no more West End stuff, back to more jazz stuff if I can, back to eternally trying to be a composer and then giving up on it and, you know, what it's like um, teaching, et cetera, et cetera. And then about a year later, I got the call again and I came back into Iraqi and I felt a much more mature musician um, and I worked my way in, became a regular in all the chairs, started conducting it as well. And then um, a few years later, I was offered, someone left and I was offered the assistant MD job at um, We Are Rock You and I turned it down. And that was a very, very, very hard decision. I must have been 
20, what would I have been, 20, maybe 28. And I turned it down. And the reason I turned it down was by this point, I really had a burning, burning desire to do a pop gig. And I thought, although I, the money would have been so amazing for me, I thought if I don't, if I take this job, I'll never do a pop gig. That won't happen. I'll get comfortable. I'll earn this amazing money. I'll probably move to another show, etc. That would be my career uh, panned out. So I turned it down without a pop gig to go to. So the, well, there wasn't anything in the pipeline like that? No. Wow. My, my, pop, my pop experience at this point, I'd done a few, I'd been booked to do a few days where um, there were these TV shows for ITV and some of the, some of the West End fixers, Morris, he had booked me for a few, um, there are a few of us where you'd learn about six songs to mime and you'd have six huge artists like, you know, Mick Hucknall, Hot Chocolate, Katie Mann, all these different people, uh, Donny Osmond, you'd learn it and you'd, and this show would be like the greatest love songs of all time or the greatest movie love songs. And you'd be the house miming band yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you'd mime them. Uh, so that was my, about my own experience of pop music at this point. And I'd done a few other TV, little TV things through those fixers. Um, I was trying, I was trying desperately to get into that world. I was writing, finding out who the pop fixers were at this point. Um, but not really to any avail. Um, so yeah, I turned this job down, which was a scary choice. And I had to keep telling myself, have I done the right thing? I don't know if I've done the right thing. And then I'd keep going into We Will Rock You and obviously someone else has taken the job and I didn't want to say that I'd been offered it, obviously, because that would be really bad for. Um, but then then you'd have periods of time with no work and I'd think, what did I do? Why did yeah. I not take this job? You know, what an idiot. <laughs> but then, as it happens, I um, I had a very lucky break, which is how it always works. Uh, a mate of mine who I knew from Guildhall who was on the jazz course as well, a trumpet player called Ben, he, he had broken out into the pop world a lot um, from years back. And he'd worked with a lot of different people. And at this point, he was working with Basement Jacks. Right. And they, um, on their record label, they had a young singer, a new young singer, who was on a tour, a little tour with a guitarist. And she was doing her first album. And uh, she had her first TV promo, which was a song which was a piano duet and they needed a piano player to do it um and they didn't know anyone because she was starting out she had just come out of the brit school um so they through the label the same guy was i think he was kind of managing both artists but not managing but he was working for both artists and he just said to ben do you know anyone but yeah my mate will do it so uh, it was adele so um she wanted to see if she could work with me so i remember i remember the first meeting we just i we were going to play through the song i was setting the track i learned it go to the premises in Hackney and there she was sat outside having a cigarette and I uh, met her and we went in it was just her and me there was no management or anything because she wasn't a big star at this point mm-hmm. and we just went through the song a few times got to know each other a bit had a coffee and uh, I was booked to do this TV special I can't remember the programme now it was, it was filmed in Wales and I was getting a lift with the manager we were all in the same car it was really small yeah um, and we drove to Wales and we filmed it um, and that was her first TV appearance, I think. And we were doing Hometown Glory, a big song. And um, then I drove back with the manager. I think she stayed up there. And he was playing me all the tracks that she'd recorded for this first album. And uh, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is incredible. She's, this is ridiculous. I mean, I've not heard anything this good, this new. Um, and he said, well, we'll be, we'll be in touch 
And then they just called me, did you want to do the band? We've got a little, the, the album's coming out, we're going to do a mini tour. It started off being a mini tour around the UK. In places you wouldn't think she played in, we did the concert hall at the Royal, at the Royal Northern. That was one of the venues. Oh, All right. these strange venues. Yeah, it was really, it was like a five gig opening album tour. And it was my first experience of, um, well, my first experience of a few things. It was my first experience of a tour bus, which I'd never seen before, a pop tour bus. Oh, my God, it was just incredible. For those of you who haven't been on one, they're just, a, a, they're a house on wheels. They're incredible. <laughs> um, it was my first experience of feeling like, yeah, I'm a musician. This is, this is actually what I've trained for. This is amazing. And then it was my first experience of doing big audience gigs because there mm. was already all these gigs sold out within five minutes I think there was already a buzz about her in the industry you could tell you could just look at the crowd who would come in and bear in mind these are gigs to about I don't know how many of these places sit 1500 people maybe I don't know um, but already you could see it was the cool crowd you could see it was the cool crowd so you thought some, there's something happening here this is that there's an undercurrent of excitement of what's going yeah. on here with her um, so we did that. That was very quick. And then immediately, I mean, if I remember rightly, it went into a, another UK tour, a bit bigger. And it just kept going. It just kept going. Um, and then started moving around Europe, doing European things. Um, and then America. And then, so the first American tour, she wasn't signed in America at this point. So it was, uh, it was a kind of a cut down tour. So it was a piano, guitar and voice. And we did America and Canada a few times. Um, interesting story there. So that's one of my sto- one of my stories. I had a bit of a nightmare the first time I went. I um, we were doing, and they 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 crammed the days in fully with radio sessions, radio promo, TV, uh, live sessions for Google, live sessions for AOL, all these different people. So we were on a Google session, and early morning, and I came over really ill, and I collapsed in the session literally uh, literally virtually I was going to pass out and I got vague memories of uh, being taken outside sitting on the floor in the this was in LA and the sun was beating down and I remember a guy going I got a friend in the fire service I'll call him so like, what do you want the fire service for so I looked up and suddenly there's this big fire engine outside and obviously they turn up and they go the guy just needs an ambulance <laughs> it's not us and they drive off it was utterly bizarre <clears throat> anyway then an ambulance came took me to uh, a hospital in Santa Monica put me on a drip it transpired I was they said it was vertigo from all the traveling because we had been flying all over the place in all the different um, time zones also I have Crohn's disease so I don't know if that had a a, a thing on it I'm not sure but um, anyway so I was in the hospital all day and we had a gig that night in a place called the Hotel Cafe in LA Um, and the manager, they were very nice. They said, look, you don't have to do it. Don't worry, we'll just do it with guitar. I said, no, no, I really want to do it. I want to do it. We'll see how you feel. Anyway, so it gets to the evening. I'm going to do it. And they, they made it as easy as they could. They had a car pick me up from the hospital last minute, drive me straight to the back door of the venue. I shuffled in. <laughs> I literally just come off the drip, sat at the piano. I remember nothing about the gig because I was drugged off my eyeballs with the stuff they had given me. But I'm so glad I did it because that gig ended up being a live album, which I had no idea at the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the, the special edition volume of, of 19 and the American release has a live disc and it's that, it's that gig, uh, which obviously has been great for me with PPL, etc. And if yeah. I hadn't done it... Yeah, so I got home a few, few months later and a bill came through the door from the hospital for about 1,500 quid. 
And I had to check that I was on the tour insurance and they wouldn't cover me on the tour insurance. So bills kept coming. And then I had a 500 quid bill come from the fire service for just them being called out. And then dry. So it ended up, I lost money on the tour just for that one morning. Um, and literally for a year, bills kept turning up. I think it ended up costing nearly £3,000. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so it was a sad, sad end to a funny story. Yeah. When you listen to that live, live album, are you aware of how ill you were or does it sound good? Um, I'm, to be honest, I'm one of these people that doesn't want to listen to myself. So I'm not really. <laughs> yeah. I know people always say that and you think, oh, come on, you must listen to it. I don't really. I, don't, I haven't listened to it a lot. I think it's fine. Um, but I honestly, I try my hardest to remember the gig and I can't, I can't remember it. I honestly can't remember Mad. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was, I was, so that was a lucky break for me. And then the Adele thing carried on. Um, great experiences. You know, we did all the TV shows in America. We did um, Letterman, which was amazing. Um, you know, USA Today did all, all these amazing. I was in the room when she signed her America contract with Columbia. I think it was Columbia. So when she signed it, I was there. Um, it was amazing. And I got to meet so many people because there was such a buzz about her. All these famous people would always be in her dressing room. Um, Mark Ronson was a regular. All these different people would turn up. And it was, I mean, it was amazing. It was also a good experience for me that in the jazz world, you, you're kind of all in it together. When you're with an artist, you travel together often. You're all in the room together in the dressing room, if there's a dressing room. But this world was my first experience of it is a real them and us yeah. The band are very separate to the artist. And that, at first, I thought, that's ridiculous. But of course, it's got to be like that. And it will be like that. But um, it was an eye-opener for me as well, that whole experience. Yeah. Did you manage to form a friendship with her? I did at the time. I mean, I'm not in contact with her now. But she, I mean, she obviously was a lot younger then as well. She, she could have her moments, I'm not going to lie. Um, and I think if she probably looked back, she'd probably say the same. Um, because I, looking back, I mean, she was 19 and had this stardom thrown on her and this success. I mean, I, I was talking earlier how immature I felt at 19. God, if I'd had anything like that, I, I wouldn't have been able to cope with it at all. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, she was, she, I mean, she had her moments, but she also had her moments where she'd have a good old laugh with us all. Because at that point, some of the band members were some of her friends from the Brit school as well. So they right. had a camaraderie. I was the old, one of the oldest there. The drummer was older than me. But, um... Yeah, so it was, it was a really good experience. Um, it ended after about three years, and I, I ended it, actually. I, I was travelling around so much. Um, and again, I look back, and this is one of my regrets. Um, I was travelling around so much that my personal life at the time, it was quite hard to balance it all out. And, and it was, I just got back from one trip, and it was like, oh, we're going back to LA at the weekend. I mean, now I'd be, yeah, let's go. Then I was like, oh, Really? Um, and I had been thinking, do I really want this now? Because it's, you know, be careful what you wish for, because when you get it, do you really want it? And I was travelling and travelling and travelling. I wasn't mature enough to deal with it. Again, I, I don't think I was mature enough to compartmentalise that. And I thought, stupidly, if I say no to this, something else like this will come off. <laughs> I'll get another gig like this. And I said, for one trip, I don't want to do that trip. And I was replaced. Right. And, and that's how it needs to be. And as it transpired after that trip, most of the band were replaced anyway because her new album came out and it was an American band and um, that tends to happen. Um, but I wish I had stuck it into the end of my stint. It, 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 I basically cut my stint short by about four or five months, which I, mm. I kind of regret at the time. But, um, 
I, yeah. I did it. How does that work in terms of like contracting and stuff? Are you contracted for a tour or for a year or? This was the headache. I wasn't contracted at all. If I had a gig like that now, I'd instantly get a fixer to be my agent for it. But I wasn't. So I was, I've always been someone that wants to try and say yes to everything and do everything. So at the time with doing her band, I was still, if I was at home doing some We Were Rock use, I was still working with another singer, a, a woman called uh, Gwyneth Herbert, who's like a folky jazz singer. And we, at the time, were recording her album at Real World Studios, which Peter Gabriel's studio, which is amazing. So I, I, was, I had three days off, I'd go there, I'd then go away with Adele again. I was trying literally to, to manage this all myself. And when you had clashes, I remember with Gwyn, with Gwyn we had this gig, at the, a really big deal gig at the Jazz Cafe. And an Adele thing came up in Paris and I horribly, I had to put myself first and I wanted to do the Adele thing. Um, and I had to let Gwyn down. I felt terrible. So I was managing it all myself. There's no contract, but it was very much on the understanding in that world. You say no once. You're out. Or get someone, you're out. Um, so I wouldn't do that this time. I, if I had a gig like that again, which I probably won't because they all want people that are in their 20s, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd, get, I'd definitely get an agent to represent me because um, it's too stressful. It's unbelievably too stressful. Yeah. Or I'd stick to just doing one thing. If this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing thing to have done, isn't it? And I didn't realise, I knew you'd, you'd worked with Adele and that you'd toured with her for a number of years, but I didn't realise it was at that point, you know, right at the peak when she was this big deal, brand new artist. That, I mean, that album was hugely successful, their first one, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I listened to it the other day, actually, because I was, I listened to a bit of it. I was doing, because we've all got time on our hands, I was updating all my PPL things and trying to find and I just I was looking at what I was listed on and I just had a little listen of the album and it's so good it's it's it really is I there's not many new pop artists that excite me but that there's not many I don't think there's anyone like that today it was no. it's really original it's really what I prefer about her first album compared to her other ones I think it's really raw and you can hear the rawness of she really didn't give a shit this is my stuff and this is what I'm doing yeah, um, and I think I love it. I mean, obviously, and I it's my personal favorite because all the songs remind me of touring and really nice experiences, and you know, going to I've got so many. There's so many stories going to secret bars in New York that we've been invited to, where you have to go to a um, a phone box, phone a certain number, and then you walk through a kebab shop, you go through the secret door, and then you're in this underground super cool bar, and there's P Diddy sitting over there, and Beyonce over there. I mean, it's incredible stories. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to just go back to what you were saying about Hammond and, you know, just, yep. just like synths and keyboards and things that we end up doing as piano players, but something that we've not necessarily learned about um, in our education. So you're working as a professional musician in the West End, Deppin, and you see a guy playing Hammond and it's like, I don't, it's like another language. I don't know if that's how you felt about it. But when I first sat in with proper Hammond players that it was like, you're doing something that. I don't speak, I don't speak that language. Mm. Um, how did you then go about developing that skill for yourself? Well, I think for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a completely alien concept because as being the, the jazzer, I'd listened to people like Jimmy Smith and, you know, I, I had listened and I, and I also liked a lot of, you know, I listened to a lot of The Who when I was a kid. My brother was a big fan of The Who. So, you know, there's, there's Hammond on rock stuff and I did yeah. Purple and stuff. So I, I, I wasn't completely alien to the concept. I just didn't know how they curated what they did. I didn't know the, um, the you know, the tone wheel, the, the Leslie Amp thing. I didn't, I didn't understand when you'd do that, how you'd be tasteful, how you'd know. How do you know to do that? How do you know when to do a slide and when not to do a slide? 
what the hell are these drawbar things about? I don't... So you watch people do it, I, and then you listen to other West End people do it. And bear in mind, I was lucky because <clears throat> on We Will Rock You, as opposed to other West End shows, Brian May had had a, a, a quite an input in the band. A lot of them are not were not West End musicians. They were rockers. Yeah. Um, Roger Taylor's son was the drummer, wasn't he? At one point he was, yeah. yeah. And you had um, <clears throat> Neil Neil on bass who plays with, um, oh gosh, Whitesnake, Whitesnake's bass oh, player. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a part of it. And um, Alan Darby on guitar, who's just, who's worked with Clapton. So you had all these great rockers, Neil Drinkwater, who although does West End, has worked with so many people. So you, you're watching the pros do the pro stuff. Um, so I just learned from the best and then I go home and practice and listen to recordings and, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Realise that actually it's quite hard when you've got a weighted keyboard, that you do need a non-weighted keyboard for stuff like this. Mm. And it's set me in good stead because then you realise actually Hammond's in pretty much everything you listen to. All, all Adele's stuff, I had a two keyboard set up, I had piano and Rhodes and then I'd have Hammond at the top just to fill out, mm. use it as a pad, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, so it wasn't alien, but it was a learning curve that I thought maybe I was surprised. It was something I had to teach myself essentially, yeah. which, yeah. which yes, I suppose it goes back to what you're doing when you're finding out whether you want to be a musician. You, everyone's teaching themselves, aren't they? They're learning, they're listening. How do you do that? What's this? And now you have YouTube. Now you have YouTube lessons. And, well, you know, yeah. The young people, we, we didn't have anything like that. We just had a record, an instrument and a bedroom. <laughs> you just yeah. work out what's going on. I so, always yeah. think there's loads of stuff on YouTube for guitarists and drummers and bass players but there's not much for keyboard players like at a pro level there's lots of no, like tutorials right. on how to play a song or whatever but there's nothing like that talks you know there aren't many people at a high level posting stuff on youtube about keyboards and pianos but. no you're right in fact what you get in keyboards is you get people telling you how to use gear yeah you go into this sub menu and how this program works and these soft synths etc which is great but yeah that's not playing the piano uh, and yeah. frankly, I, mean, I, I know we all have to know that, but I've never been a gearhead. And I just, my, my, my eyes glaze over when <laughs> I start talking about gear. I literally, I can't, I step away from conversations like that with other piano players and start talking about something else. I can't go for it. Um, I know you did quite a bit of work on TV as well. You've been involved yes. with things like the X Factor, Britain's Got Talent. Um, were, you, were you one of the pianists at Judges' Houses? Was that one of your roles? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I... That, um, so the X, yes, the X Factor thing, that's another learning experience. So they have a few, how it works, they have a set of piano players and you're called into call, what's called routining. So before every, about two weeks before each episode, um, they know what theme it's going to be and they'll have, uh, you'll be in a room, there'll be producers, the management, a vocal coach, and they'll just test different songs essentially with the artist, the contestant. And you're there to play. When I started, it was, here's all the sheet music for all these songs. We've just printed them all out. Work it through, work it through with the vocal coach who's in charge. You're there. Your role is to play the piano. Your role, okay, let's change the key. Okay, let's change the key. Let's press the transpose button because I'm not going to transpose it. (laughs) Things like that. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's cut that out. Let's let's, uh, move that section there. So you end up with a massive scribbled mess. Um... And then you do a little recording and then what that then will go to the producers who do something clever with it, make a track based on that, which is then what's played out on the show. Right. Um, then if you're lucky, you get called to do judges' houses because not everyone gets called to do it. Sometimes if it's in L- LLA, they'll use LA musicians anyway. 
Um, but sometimes they'll just want a guitarist or the old favourites. You have to work your way into the clique to get asked. Right. Um, I do remember my first day at Guild, my, Guild, my first day at X Factor, my very, I'm a bit nervous, my very first time there. Uh, I literally not even knowing how it really works. I went in a room with Gary Barlow. Couldn't have more pressure. And he's within 10 minutes, he said, so, uh, Steve, uh, how would you reharmonize this? <laughs> oh, my God, are you joking me? And he's, like, leaning over me going, what would you do? I don't know what I'd do. What would you do? Like, oh, <laughs> so it was a real baptism by fire. But you get to meet lots of people. Yeah, and you get to do judges' houses. So I did a couple of judges' houses. Um, the first judges' house I did, the, it was a, actually it's a funny story there because it was... Um, one of my proudest moments because Mark Ronson was the visiting um, expert to judge them. And he came in and I'm sat at the piano. This is a few years after Adele now. And if you remember, I said he was a regular coming into the drink. Yeah. And he, he looked at me and he just pointed. He went, I know you. What? He goes, yeah, I know you. you. You work with Adele, don't you? You used to do Adele's band. And I thought, oh, my God, Mark Ronson. And he, and he put out his hand, he goes, I'm Mark. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, I'm Steve. And I, and I just, that made my confidence soar. And everyone like, how do you know Mark Ronson? It was amazing. <laughs> so it was a real, it was a lovely point. It was a lovely point for my ego, nice. I have to say. Yeah, I bet. And then, yeah, and I did another one in France in glistening, massive heat, blistering heat in Nice. But they're great, they're great. But high pressure because it's one take. You've got to get it right. Yeah. And, and in fact, the real pressure was they have something called the six chair challenge and you um, where it is still with piano and not track. So you're performing live and it's at Wembley Arena. So you've got thousands of people watching. You've got the live filming. You've got the judges. You're on a stage at the back on the piano. You've worked out. You've worked out your arrangement. I come on with 12 scribbled pages because that's how I work. My mate. Uh, guitarist Nick, he 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 did some of it, and he couldn't understand why I didn't rewrite the chart out much more simply. But that's just not how I work. I like I recognise I'm one of these people that if I've scribbled something out, I recognise that scribble, so I know what it means. Yeah. So I know it means to jump two pages or so. If I rewrite it, I, it's like a new. It's weird. It's a weird mental thing in my head. I'd rather have the mess and deal with the mess. <laughs> um, but you've got the pressure of doing one take. Um, you're on the piano here. The the, the singer is a good 40, 50 feet. In fact, no, probably about 100 feet away on one of their walkways that go out into the audience. You start playing, you've not done a sound check and you can't hear yourself because everyone's screaming and you, and you know it's being filmed and you've just got to keep playing. Oh, and man. that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. And then they go, oh, oh, do you want, um, do you need a wedge then? Do you need some sort of monitor? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, so it was that, that, that was terrifying and absolute mega pressure sounds like it god yeah i was gonna say i've got a funny story and um, one of the times at wembley um so they started getting to the tune that we need to do some uh, sound checks so you take while you're working in the bowels of wembley arena with all the artists and everyone working it through you then oh it's your your 20 minutes just go up on stage and we'll do a little sound check so i go up all the lights are out i see the piano so i start going up the stairs no one's around and uh Everything drops and I drop and the world just, what's happened? And what had happened was the stairs had been pulled away from the stage. It's pitch black, you can't see. And I just fell about seven or eight feet, smashed my knee on um, one of the poles under the stage, landed. I broke two ribs 
I was oh. lying on the floor. I thought, I thought I'd broken my leg. I thought it was the most painful thing. Um, and then they suddenly called everyone around me. Uh, I didn't know what the hell had gone on. And then they called me to, they took me to the St John's Ambulance place. Luckily, I hadn't broken my knee, which they thought I had done, but I'd hit a nerve, so which is why it was so painful. I couldn't walk or anything. Um, yeah, I since found out I'd broken two ribs. So I was gone for about an hour, and I came back to the room limping. They go, where have you been? <laughs> like, I got told off. And I explained <laughs> what had happened. And then I had to film that night. I had to film that night in this pressure, in front of thousands of people, couldn't breathe because I got these broken ribs. Um, and I had to get the filming out of the way. It was horrendous. Um, and, and all my mates were saying at the time, you should sue, you should sue them. And, and then it transpired, they should have had it, uh, someone should have been there, it should have been tied off. But, it, you know, it, maybe you shouldn't put this out, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, it, it, it happened, I didn't want inter- to... It raises an interesting point as a musician, you, you know, where's the line of your rights or the, the, the fear of losing work? You know, what, yeah. what, when you're in that position, how far do you actually push it? How far would you be prepared to push it? Um, and I certainly didn't want to lose any work. And I just, you know, it could have been more serious. I could have hit my head. I didn't, thank God. And uh, it, it was what it was. Man, that's that's awful. Yeah. But it's true what you say. Like when you, especially in a high profile gig like that, when, you know, you're lucky to be there, essentially, you don't want to, you don't want to piss anyone off, even although you've just fallen eight feet off of a, yeah. you know, a riser and broken two ribs and then had to do the gig. It's mental. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I, I do remember, I mean, they, they, they eventually sent me a bottle of gin to see how I was, but <laughs> I had to remind them for that, if I'm honest. I had to say to the, to the lovely lady who books me, I had to say, look, I'm a bit pissed off, to be honest. I've not had anything. No one's asked me how I am. And then literally, lo and behold, a day later, a bottle of gin with two glasses arrived. <laughs> so yeah. But that job, and then that ended up changing a bit, that job. I mean, it was a great job, don't get me wrong. And I had another highlight of that. Uh, One one year they had a master, the last six contestants had a masterclass with a big artist. And that year it was Lionel Richie. And I got the gig of being the piano player. So I spent all day with Lionel Richie, just him and me with the contestants working through songs. So he is literally one of the loveliest guys around. So that was a real high, one of my career highs of literally be working with him all day just him and me it was amazing yeah. so it's been a good it's been a good um a really good experience and pressure as well because apart from the pressure with the music they've changed it now where they don't they don't give you sheet music anymore so while a group of people over there and it's a good lesson as a musician actually while, while a group of people over there vocal coaches producers are listening to music you are now expected to be listening as well and writing out a chord chart while it's happening just yourself. So literally they will turn around and go, okay, can we play this now? And you need to be ready to go. And that's how it works now. So it's a really good ear training mm. gig and, and hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. What was your route into it? Did that come as a result of your work with Adele and sort of doing the pop thing? Or was it from the previous work in, in, in like Miming for Telly? It was, um, it was for the West End actually. It was for a mate who I, um, who I was depping for, I used to dep for him a lot on different shows and he was one of the piano players and someone was leaving, so he recommended me in. It's always, all these things are always through someone else. I mean, the Adele thing did lead to a lot of other TV um, gigs and mimes. I worked with a lot of people on different TV shows, um, you know, Strictly Come Dance, so many shows. And that and when you're on a book, the books of a, an agent... And they see you work with Adele, they want to book you. It just, it, yeah. It's a bit silly, but that's how it works. Um, so 
I was lucky in that sense. I got a lot of stuff. But I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't really get much stuff like that anymore because, honestly, I think I'm too old. I, I just don't think... It, they, they want someone... It's a, it's a young man's game. It really is. It's a young person's game. Um, is that because of... like? Is that an, an image thing? Is that just about looking the part to be on stage, on, on telly with these artists? I think so. I think... Yeah. I mean, I might be wrong. I'm not the expert, but I think it is. I think... Certainly in the X Factor world, like the extreme pop world, they want young people. Um, and it's a young, you know, because also what people don't realise who haven't done it, it's not, it's not the money you think it is. It's not, um, you know, getting, getting a pop gig now, it's, you, you'll earn more money in the West End, which is why I think everyone wants to come to the West End. Mm. Um, the days of, I mean, I know people in my, my dad's generation who are musicians who would be touring with, all the stars of that time, they'll come home from a, you know, oh yeah, I, I bought my house out. God, I, I didn't. <laughs> where, where did that come from? Um, so that doesn't happen for this generation. It's really tough for us now, I think. It's not just in music. I think in the world in general, general I think my generation are the generation that didn't luck out, weren't working in the 80s when houses were cheap, etc. You know, we, we didn't have that. Um, yeah. You know, my dad bought a house in the southeast. And at the time, he was a laundry delivery driver. You know, yes, he had a mortgage, but if you were a delivery driver now, you won't get a mortgage to buy a semi-detached house in, in Whitstable or anything like that. You know, it just, yeah. it just won't happen. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a lot tougher for us now and even tougher for the generation b- below me because they're coming out of college with massive debts as well, which I was very lucky not to have because I was in one of the last years before you had to pay your own fees. Mm. So I didn't have that. Um, so is that what brought you back into musical theatre and playing in the West End, was it about security and, you know, a bit of financial stability and what you were doing? Yes, yeah. And, um, yeah, and I'd done the pop thing now. Um, and what... So at this point, my, my West End experience had been depping on a few shows. And then a, a friend of mine who I knew, again, it all comes from who you know, he had been the MD at We Will Rock You for a time, Elliot Ware. He then became the MD of Rock of Ages and he asked me to be assistant. So that was my first assistant gig. Um, and it was a funny one that because it's there's only one piano on the on the show, so it's a strange assistant job where you're not there every night. Mm. You're contracted to do a certain amount of hours rehearsals, and you're contracted to do a certain amount of conducts in a two week period, um, and that's how you're paid. So you can still do other stuff, which I did. I was depping on other shows, but um, that was great. It was a great experience, actually the first show I worked on when you get to know the cast because you're an assistant, because you're in all the rehearsals. Yeah. Um, and that, that's interesting as well. The, the, since then I've worked as a DEP, I've worked as a DEP conductor where I haven't been the assistant, but the difference when you're conducting a show. Um, so for example, I was a conductor. I was one of the conductors on Tina, the musical, um, but I'm not an assistant there and I've not done a lot of rehearsals. So I don't know a lot of the cast and it's very yeah. hard when you're conducting a show, you're in warm up. Who, who the hell's this guy? <laughs> and you, oh, this is Steve. He's going to conduct the show tonight. And it's quite terrifying that, oh my God, I've got to, they're looking at me thinking, who am I? I'm looking at them thinking, please, please make this easy for me. Yeah, I be don't nice know, to I me. Don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a stress. That's a real stressful, but I think throughout my life, all the stressful things I've had, um, I can deal with it better now. You know, I, as I've got older and I've, worked on my nerves and worked on my confidence. You can just, you end up dealing with stuff better like that. Um, but yeah, so from the Rock of Ages assistant led to another assistant, Sunny Afternoon, Loserville, loads of jobs I've been assistant on, 
or I've been a conductor that's been the depth. Like in School of Rock, I was there all the time. I wasn't the assistant, but I was conducting all the time. I was there all the time. Um, mm. I've been very lucky as a DEP pre, pre-COVID. I was very, very lucky that I'd only had one full-time uh, show gig, which was I Can't Sing, which was that very successful X Factor <laughs> musical that lasted about four weeks. <laughs> that's the only eight-show week job I'd had. Um, yeah. So I'd been as a DEP, but as a DEP, I'd been having 10, 11, 12 shows a week. I've been super, super, super busy. I've been yeah. very, very lucky. Very, very lucky. But it's stressful. Again, you know, you're self-employed. You're... Um, you're invoicing all these different people when you're doing your accounts because you've got no p- payslip. It's all invoicing and it's really hard to keep on top of and it's been really stressful. That's been one of the hardest things, actually. I've often wanted a PA or something, but, mm. yeah, we don't earn enough money to, <laughs> to have a PA. <laughs> so there you go. And do you find depping is, you talked about managing your nerves and stuff now, but do you, after having gone and done all, done all the other things that you've done, do you find it quite comfortable to go in and if you're depping on a number of shows at one time and you've got you know different keyboard parts that you're thinking about working with different conductors different rhythm sections how do you feel now going into the pit to dip whether it's for the first time or on a show that you've maybe not done for a while yeah I definitely can deal with that better now um I'm 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 mature enough I've I've learned through experience that because these are things I didn't know when I came out of college how how different conductors can be so different from each other you watch you see oh actually he's not even really queuing that he's just letting you get on with it or he's over the top queuing you must get it there um you go I've learned that well I did this anyway but the importance of going in early as a keyboard player you're playing an instrument that isn't your instrument go in a few hours earlier ask can it be switched on how do I switch it on? Because also I've been in early and it's all turned off and I don't know what the hell to do because I'm a DEP. That's so important to get the familiarity of what the hell you're working on. Um, I've always been quite envious of instrumentalists who bring their own instrument in. They don't have any of that stress. Yeah. But as keyboard players, we have that. And it's, it's a big thing. It's a big... Pianos can vary so much. And is it main stage? Is it hardware? Is it this? Is it that? Where's the yeah. pedal? Does the pedal keep moving away from me? Do I need to put some tape on it? Things like, you know, all yeah, the annoying I, little do things. Do I need to release the keys to change the patch? Or can I change the patch exactly. when I'm sustaining? All that stuff, yeah. Exactly. Is the chair comfortable? Is it? Do I have to get another chair? Where do I find another chair to stack on it? All these little things that people don't think about. But as a piano player, you have to deal with all of this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I've dealt with that better. Um, and, and I suppose the more people know who you are, Bizarrely, the more slack they'll give you as well. I, I think the thing I've learned most is if I make a mistake years ago, which I will, because we all do, um, years ago I'd, I'd let it eat away at me and that then breeds another mistake and another mistake. Now I'm quite able to go, okay, move on. And it's gone. It's literally gone. Yeah. And you have to be like that. Something that you you said when I first got in touch with you, which I thought was really interesting, is that you very much see yourself as more than just a musician. Um, I can relate to that a lot. Um, I've got other interests and other things going on in the side as well. Mm. But I, I know a lot of people who don't see themselves that way, who very much see themselves as a musician and it's, you know, everything, it's the lifestyle, all the rest of it. And it's it's sort of what defines them. How important is it to you to have those other interests? And is music now a job for you or is it still something more than just a job? Good question. Um I think uh, it's, it's of the utmost importance to me, the other stuff outside of music. Um, I've always had this, even at college, I, I, I've, from, a, from a very early age, I've, I've been a huge reader. I love literature. I, I read, I'm constantly reading. Um, I have a lot of passions. 
I've been a Formula One fan since I was five. And by fan, I don't just mean fan. I mean, I watch every practice session. I follow it religiously. I've been to countless Grand Prix. I'm obsessed. If I could be a motor racing driver tomorrow and not be a musician, like at the click of a finger, I'd do it. I absolutely <laughs> do. And in fact, that's what I do for one of my releases. I go go-karting a lot. That's, that's how I, that's when I feel alive, just mm. tearing it around a go-kart track. But no, it's very important for me. Um, and I find that that maybe has held me back sometimes because I've not had the drive that I see in some people, that I've seen in some people who are, they live for music, they spend hours and hours and hours playing or producing and then they'll go home and they'll spend hours and hours and hours. And I get it and I, part of me, it's weird, part of me is envious of it but part of me doesn't want that because I don't want, I don't want to just be music. It's, there's more to me than that. And that's just the cards I've been dealt with my personality, that's who I am. Um, so it's not a criticism for people who are like that. I think that it begs that whole question, doesn't it? In in industry, in the arts, to be successful, do you have to be one hundred percent in it? Are the people that really, really, really make it um, the people that have been like that? Because it, it's weird when I look back on my career to date. Honestly, I would say. I look at myself as a bit of a failure because I don't see that I've had the career that I could have had. Um, and I, when I think of that, I go back to when I was 15, thinking I'd be touring the world with my own music, being my Coldfield. <laughs> Just <laughs> That's what I thought I'd be doing. And it hasn't transpired like that. And I thought I'd be having this big country house, et cetera. Et cetera. And it, you know, that's just not reality for us. So... There are times when I think if I'd been completely down the music avenue, would I have achieved more? Would I have done more? Would I have had more West End show seats? Would I have more money? Would I, you know, would I have toured the world more? Would I have seen more of the world? But I wouldn't change anything, to be honest. I, I think it's important to have a grounded personality. Yeah, because would you be as satisfied with your life overall? You might have had success, you might have the nice house, you might be busy all the time, but mm. would you have all the other things in your life which are clearly adding value in totally different ways? Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, I mean I I mean I'm I'm obsessed with watches. Uh, literally absolutely obsessed with watches. I wanted to I, ask I, you about this because it's a very yeah. interesting hobby and thing to collect. Yeah, I mean it's an expensive thing to collect. <laughs> It's, I, um, yeah, I, I've, I just, I've loved them since I was a kid, but I've got really into them in the last seven or eight years. Um, collecting ones I can afford and then selling and then as you earn more money, getting nicer ones. I listen, I follow all the watch podcasts. I, so I'll, I, I mean, I've got into running as well. I, I, I run, um, I've done five marathons now from being a very overweight child. Um, all, all my childhood, I was the fat kid. Um, and I think that that's, that's a confidence thing as well that I've struggled with. Um, so I, at one point in my life, a few years ago, about eight years ago, it was a breakup, actually. It was a, a relationship breakup. And I thought, right, OK, I'm going to really, as everyone does, I'm going to sort myself out and get fit. And I did. I started doing um, like Sean T, insanity workouts, etc. Yeah. And I went into running and I've not stopped. And, um, and then I did, I did some marathons. So I've done five marathons now. But when I'm running a marathon, I'll be listening to a watch. But I'll be listening to people talk about the latest Speedmaster <laughs> or the Rolex sales sale numbers for last year or something. You know? <laughs> but I'm fascinated to the point that I've I've even written an art, a published article on a watch I had. I did a review of a watch I had, and I, I there's a Scottish Scottish watches, which is like one of the biggest watch websites in this country. 
um, they published it. So yeah, so I'm, cool. I can say I'm a published watch journalist now. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick a link to that in the episode notes so people oh, can God. find it. <laughs> Amazing. So if you've got any advice for young pianists or young musicians, maybe specifically people who are interested in looking to make a career in the commercial music world or as a pop player, what should they be doing at this stage? I think, I mean, whatever you do, there's the general advice, which is don't be an arsehole, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) So many people, so many people are come into an environment and are cocky and are arrogant or are rude and they don't realise, whatever that environment is, whether it be a West End show, whether it be a pop rehearsal, whatever it is, you're not coming back if you're going to be like that. And I find it so hard to believe that people can't see that. What makes you think this arrogance, someone's going to ask you back, it's not going to happen. So that, that, I mean, my my, my dad always said that to me as a bit of advice. He said, you know, the classic, be careful, be nice to everyone on the way up because on the way down, you're going to meet them again. And it's so true. And he also, he said, um, delegate. He said, don't ever, because I I was trying to do my accounts myself when I started. And he just said, why bother? Just pay an accountant to do the accountants. You concentrate on playing the piano. And that's held me in good stead as well. And I have found myself, and I've been really busy spending so many hours doing invoicing and all the things we have to do, where this time could be better spent creatively. Mm. Um, I'd also say to people... Believe in yourself, but temper that with not being arrogant. You know, have some self-belief because you do, you will be in a position where you have to go in and just be thrown in at the deep end and you can't be timid. You can't be, oh, and I should ask it, you, you can't do that because, again, you won't be asked back. It's getting mm-hmm. that fine balance of being not cocky, but confident. And I, I, I still struggle with that, if I'm honest. Um, also, try yourself creatively to get work. Don't just rely on the phone to ring. Um, I mean, we've all, we're all guilty of it, but you know, I I got I know I got the pop gig through a friend, but that wasn't without trying. I was on the books of every pop agent there was. I found out who the West End agents were before I worked in the West End, and I wrote to them all way before I started working in the West End. You've got you've got to you've got to put it out there. You've got to find out who the piano player is if that's your instrument uh, of a new show. If you want to dep on it, find out the details. And contact them, but then be very wary. They don't know who the hell you are, so don't go, hey, mate. You know, they're going to go, who's this little, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be careful. And you know what it's like, that's what people are like in the West End world. They, they can be quite disparaging of a new, a new guy or a new girl yeah. contacting them, which I don't like as well, because come on, someone's got to start somewhere. I'm always quite open to new depths. I want, I want to be nice and welcoming. But also don't be over, <laughs> don't, balance it well. Be, be aware you're asking a favour. Just to, Also, in the West End, don't, don't expect you're going to be adept. Just ask to sit in. Be prepared to do stuff for free. That's a good lesson um, to start with. You know, just ask, can I sit in? And don't ask, so can I learn it? Don't ask that. Wait to be asked, I think, mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and I, I was told that at, at Guildhall as well, that, you know, all the things you achieve... Like I've, someone would say, oh, I've got here, but I did a whole year of volunteering to get here. You know, you, you have to, people aren't going to pay you straight away. Unfortunately, in our, in our business, it doesn't work like that. So you, you have to be aware how our industry works. Um, the West End industry works very different to the pop industry, you know, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The classical world is a very different ballgame again. Um, so have some industry awareness. Do your research, I would mm. say. Uh, be on time. 
<laughs> always turn up on time. Be friendly. Be the person that's got there a bit early and set up. When it says 10 o'clock, don't turn up at 10 o'clock having to un- unload all your gear. Be ready to play at 10 o'clock. Little things that are really simple that you'd be surprised how many people screw up. Leave time for traffic. <laughs> all yeah. these little things. Um, I've always been quite good at that, I think. Yeah, just being conscious of your reputation, I think, is so important, which sort of ties into all of that stuff you've been saying. Like, that's what it is. We're essentially a a business or a product that you're offering out there. So you've got to make it appealing. You've got to, you want to be the person people want to work with. You've got to be able to do the job, but you've got to be a nice guy. You've got to be on time, reliable, trustworthy, all the rest of it. So, yeah, great mm. advice. And you can't go wrong if you do all that, really. If, you know, if you're nice to work with and you do a good job, there's no reason no one's going to book you, frankly. Yeah. Apart from if everyone's like that. But let me tell you, they're not like that. So if you stand out of being really nice, you're going to get some work. <laughs> yeah. The best advice I was given when I was starting out was an American uh, musician that I know said, don't be a dick and don't be shit. That's it. There you go. That's basically <laughs> it. I was trying to be nice. I was trying to... You know, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, don't be a twat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in terms of practical playing advice, Jason Rabello, who's an amazing piano player, lucky enough to have some lessons off him at Guildhall, he said something, and this, this is very much goes to the jazz type of players and the rock players, the, the poppy stuff. You know what it's like, you sit on the piano, you noodle around. And he said, uh, he said if you sound good practising, you're not practising. And that's very mm. true. I.e., if you're practising, you're breaking something down, you're repeating, you're going back. But if you're just going, hey, listen to me, that's not practicing. That's just noodling away. <laughs> yeah. So that's always stuck with me as well. When I find myself noodling for the last half hour, I think, oh, shit, I actually haven't done anything for half an hour. I've just been yeah. noodling, massaging my ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, where can people find you if they want to, you know, keep up, up to date with you? Are, you? are you doing social media and stuff? Where can they get hold of you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Stephen Holness, that's Stephen with a V. And I'm on Twitter at StevieKeys1000. Nice. But unfortunately, if you go on Twitter at the moment, you'll probably just see a barrage of uh, excluded rants <laughs> because I've had oh, any yeah. help so far. So, so ignore, well, don't ignore them, but uh, forgive me if I've got a bit angry on some of them. Yeah, no, quite right. Quite right. It's shocking really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been tough. Conversation for another time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm holding myself back <laughs> from exploding. <laughs> Cheers, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode and for getting to the end. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. As always, if you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, there are plenty of previous episodes available for you to check out if you haven't done so already. As always, the most helpful thing you can do to support this podcast is to share it with your friends and family and anyone else who might be interested in listening. So if you have enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it on social media. See you next week.